Hey there, Zoo Pals. It's John. Welcome to our first zoo review. Today we're going to be starting with, of course, the Louisville Zoo. The Louisville Zoo is my hometown zoo. It's the one that I grew up going to with my family, with school field trips, and of course with volunteer work. So it's very near and dear to my heart. A little history on the Louisville Zoo. It's founded in 1969. It opened on May 1st to a large crowd of eager zoo-goers. The first section that was opened up was their Africa section. And you can still see some of those original exhibits today. They're quite good and make use of some neat perspective tricks. You'll hear me talk about that when I talk about the giraffes. It's been named the State Zoo of Kentucky. And their motto is, to better the bond between the people and our planet. Quite a good motto that I really feel like encapsulates what zoos are supposed to be. You know, zoos are supposed to show us why our planet matters, and I think the Louisville Zoo does a really great job of doing that. So, a little bit about my personal history. Like I said, this is the zoo that I grew up going to. I've always had a fascination and love for animals, especially zoo animals, just because it's a place where, as a kid, I can experience all of these mysterious animals that I've only read about in books. Uh, tigers and elephants, giraffes, bears. They're all things that you don't normally encounter in the the suburbs of Jeffersonville, Indiana. Uh, When I was in middle school, I had the opportunity to start volunteering at the Louisville Zoo, and boy, howdy, did I take that opportunity. I spent our hot, muggy summers shoveling animal poop and, (laughs) and honestly having the time of my life. My first year, I worked with the bird department at the Louisville Zoo. And my very first day, as uh, if you know me at all, you won't be surprised by this story, I showed up in flip-flops because it was very hot outside. And I went to uh, I went to work in Lorikeet Landing, which is where you can feed the lorikeets at the Louisville Zoo. And the zookeeper in charge was like, did you seriously wear flip-flops to come volunteer at the zoo? No, that's not safe to be around all these animals with your feet out. Um, having since fed the lorikeets in flip-flops, I can confirm that they have tried to nibble on my toenails. So I can certainly see why that was a safety hazard, but (laughs) I had to go work in the splash park over in Glacier Run for the day and uh, supervise a bunch of kids, which, you know, I still enjoyed, but I was very sad that I didn't get to interact with the animals. So you bet your butt I remembered to wear my shoes every day after that. Working with the bird department was great. I did a lot of work in the Islands Pavilion, where uh, most of the smaller birds are housed. Did a lot of cleaning in the aviary. One of my favorite things to do was to help them prepare the fish to feed the penguins. Back then, they had the macaroni penguins. Those are the ones with the yellow feathers around their eyes, which kind of looks like little bits of macaroni. They don't have those penguins here at the Little Zoo as of the time of this recording. Uh, They did some remodeling in the penguin exhibit. And now they have two new species of penguin, the African penguin and the little penguin which are both, of course, super adorable and unique, and I love them just as much, but I have a little connection with those macaroni penguins. Um, I still remember some of their names. I would feed them little sardine-sized fish. Some of them had to take medicine, so we had to set those fish aside. And each penguin, you had to get to know them, and you would count how many fish each one had taken because at the zoo, they're, uh, they're really good about paying attention to which animals are eating how much, who's who's eating more, who's eating less, who's not feeling well, who didn't want to eat their food today, who didn't take their medicine today, etc. These keepers bond with the animals they work with, just like you or I might bond with our dog or cat, and they notice the little things, just like you or I might notice that that Roxy ate a little bit less today, or 
Rex has been coughing a lot this week or stuff like that. And they really do build a bond. I really came into my own as a zoo volunteer working with what the Louisville Zoo calls the Valley Department. This was when I was most excited by big cats. The snow leopard is still one of my top five favorite animals. And the Valley Department was responsible for all the big cats, um, the Maine wolves, and the Australia section, and the large Wanako exhibit, specifically the duck pond. Uh, So my first year, you know, they trained me up. I remember them taking me to see the lions and them forcing us to stop at the bathroom and uh, go pee before we went to see the lions because I guess they've had several volunteers go back to feed the lions and when coming a foot away from a several hundred pound big cat that would just love to eat your face, immediately peed their pants. (laughs) That's not an experience they want you to have your first time meeting the lions. But I grew to care for those cats. My favorite animals to work with actually ended up being the wallabies and wallaroos, so much so that the keepers started to just drop me off with all of their food and medicine, etc. Um, I would clean the exhibits, I would change over their food and water, I would make sure everyone had taken their medicine, and they would pick me up just in time for us to go see the snow leopards, which they knew were my favorite. And that's how I spent my middle school summers, just three days a week at the zoo, braving the heat, braving the rain. It was worth it every time, and I know this is like the back of my hand now because of it. And because of that, I have the opportunity to tell you what I believe is the best route here to take at the Louisville Zoo. Now, the great thing about it is that it is a circular path. A lot of people come here who have season passes, and they will just jog early in the morning, uh, get their miles in. I'm not sure exactly what the length of that track is, but it is listed on the signs and on the maps, so you'll be able to figure that out pretty easily. But the ideal part of this path is that you could go either way. You could start your visit off heading into Africa. Uh, That's going off to the left as you come into the zoo. Or you could start your visit off going into the islands. Now, there are some reasons to go to the islands first. One of those reasons being that the islands are an exhibit that rotates. So what you see in an exhibit in the morning might not be there by the time you've made it all the way around the zoo. So it's a good way to make sure that you see both sets of animals would be to go to the islands, see the rest of the zoo, and then return to the islands exhibit again before you leave. As you can only see four of the five animals at any one time. One of the animals gets to take a break. But of course, we'll talk about that when we get to my exhibit highlights. The direction I'm going to recommend, with the possible caveat of starting in the islands exhibit first, is that you start off in Africa. I like to get through the outside sections of the zoo while it's still relatively cool outside. At least nowadays, the zoo opens at about 10 o'clock when it's still pretty cool. So you can get through most of Africa and make it to some air-conditioned gorilla forest by the time it gets to the hottest part of the day. So of course, I recommend that you start off making your way through Africa Once you've made it past the elephants, the lions, and the zebras, you'll be presented with the opportunity to go into the African outpost. When I'm with my nephews, who are three, four, and five, going on six, this is where we always stop for a meal, because uh, this is the first bathroom that you will encounter, uh, and it's about an hour from the front of the zoo, especially if you're stopping to look at things. So a lot of times we'll stop here, get some food, get the kids to go to the bathroom, Enjoy the air conditioning for a little bit before we move on. When I'm there with older friends or on my own, I prefer to wait to get food until I get to Wild Burger down in the Australia section. When we went there to film this, <laughs> Wild Burger was actually not open, which is unfortunate. It's because we were kind of hungry. We just had a little snack at the African outpost and went on. But if you are going to skip on the African outpost, you would pass on through Colobus Crossing, which is one of my exhibit highlights. 
we'll get to that. Moving on through there, you'll pass through the Meerkat and Mole Rat House and head into Gorilla Forest, which there are two paths to get through. If you're feeling adventurous and you don't have anybody with you who has mobility issues, absolutely take the Gorilla Trail. That's really exciting, especially for the kiddos. There's a lot of little neat details that you might not notice on your first way through. And there's a great opportunity to crawl under a hippo trail underneath of a fallen log, which the kiddos always enjoy. It also offers a few views of both the gorilla and pygmy hippo exhibits that you might not be able to see if you take the main road. But, of course, if you have someone who uh, has some accessibility issues, there is a, a path that is not so rough that you can take around the outside, and you'll still have plenty of opportunity to see the hippos and gorillas from other viewing angles. Once you pass through Gorilla Forest, you'll be passing Tiger Taiga and the Snow Leopard Pass, uh, which are the beginning area of the award-winning Glacier Run exhibit. You'll pass through Glacier Run and see the Wallaroo Walkabout and Lorikeet Landing, which constitutes their Australia section. Then, of course, I would recommend you stop at Wild Burger and get yourself some delicious, delicious burgers and fries. And my producer is giving me the eyes. Heaven forbid we forget the absolutely delicious Dole Whip that is available at the stand right outside of Wild Burger. My producer is a huge fan of Dole Whip, and he certainly recommends that you give it a try if you've never had it before. Moving on from Wild Burger, and more importantly, the Dole Whip, you'll see the Americas section, starting off with South American animals, and moving on to Cats of the Americas, which is mostly North American animals. From there, don't forget to pass through the MetaZoo, where you can see all of the ambassador animals who are often interacting with people during non-COVID times where the zookeepers are actually able to have animals outside of their exhibits ready to be interacting with the general public. After passing through the MetaZoo, you'll head through the Herb Aquarium, through the Islands Pavilion, and find yourself, for the first or second time, in the Rotating Islands exhibit. Now I'd love to get into my exhibit highlights for the Louisville Zoo. I've got five exhibits here that I feel like truly stand above most of the exhibits that you see here at the Louisville Zoo. The first I mentioned was Colobus Crossing, um, which is quite similar to Snow Leopard Pass, which will be the third one of these that you'll encounter. Nested right in between those is the award-winning Gorilla Forest. Then, after the Snow Leopard Pass, you'll lead right into Glacier Run. And at the end of your tour, and possibly at the beginning of your tour, is the award-winning Islands exhibit, which we'll talk about last. So, starting with the Colobus Crossing exhibit, I touch on it quite a bit in my main review, but one of the things I really love about it is that you truly feel like you are surrounded by the animals. They have several pathways overhead that lead from their outdoor exhibit to their indoor exhibit. You can see them from their indoor exhibit, and there's a path that goes all the way around their outdoor exhibit. So you have many angles from which to view the Colobus monkeys and the Schmidt's red-tailed monkeys that call this exhibit their home. And even more importantly, the animals have many views to see the humans who are wandering through their home. So it's almost as though you are in the rainforests of Africa, watching these monkeys move overhead on a tree branch or on a vine. Sometimes they'll just be hanging out up there with their tail hanging out of the fence, and you feel like you can almost reach up and grab it. If you can, well, don't. <laughs> we don't want the monkeys getting hurt. But I really enjoy the immersion that you feel in the Colobus Crossing exhibit. After that, you'll come along to the Gorilla Forest exhibit, um, this is one of the uh, internationally recognized exhibits here at the Louisville Zoo. 
and it kind of taps into their central philosophy here. You'll notice as you go into along the gorilla trail, you'll see this large outdoor open exhibit with lots of trees, lots of open space for them to move around. It kind of is encircled by a low wall that you're peering over. And then there's this large hill in the middle that rises up out of this exhibit. And that's just half of their outdoor space. The other half you get to see on your way out of the exhibit. So these, ha these gorillas have two separate outdoor spaces that they get to enjoy. And even more interesting, when you get into their indoor exhibit, you step into this central circular area. And the exhibit is all around you. The gorillas um, can essentially circle around you at their will. Now those sections are really split into three separate indoor exhibits. So when you're visiting Gorilla Forest, you might want to pay attention to Jelani. He's one of our um, male gorillas in the in the group down there in the male group. Uh, they're all in their 20s now. All those all those uh, boys are in their 20s, and he likes cell phones. He's gone viral, if you will, a couple times with um, his enjoying or seeming to enjoy looking through cell phones. That was Kyle Shepard the media director at the local zoo. So he particularly likes video of animals. Okay. He loves videos of gorillas and photos of gorillas, of course, but animals or, or gorillas, he'll look at anything moving. He'll look at your cell phone, but those are the things that will sort of keep his attention a little longer. And why does he like it? We're not quite sure, but we believe that he was injured at another zoo. And when that happened, we think maybe when they pulled him off exhibit to, to, to care for him and heal him, that maybe they, he saw them using cell phones and became intrigued by them, but he still he still does like to look at them. He'll tap the glass for you to switch the photo. <laughs> he will tap the glass and, and move his finger one way or the other for you. To, it's like he knows you know how to swipe. But so that's a great way to contribute to the enrichment. Absolutely, and it is an absolutely enriching for, for them. Um, and we we work with a, a group called Red Apes who who provided some iPads and some activities for our reins that, mm -hmm. that enjoy, um, they don't actually use the iPads, but they engage with the apps on there through a screen. Um, so there was a fishing app and a music app that Bella seemed to like the, 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 the music app. But anyway, when mm -hmm. you're in Gorilla Forest, uh, Jelani's got a really kind of a long ovalish face and he's generally the one by the window. Um, for the cell phones. For the cell phones, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and if you, you don't know who it is, the other three don't care about cell phones, so they're not going to come to the window, but he will be the one that comes to the window. So when you're in Gorilla gotcha. Forest with that, be sure to visit Helen in Gorilla Forest if she's uh, on exhibit. She is the oldest in, in the country and the second oldest in North America, wow. uh, and, or actually in the world. Um, but she's 60, she'll be 63 in wow. January. We will celebrate her 63rd birthday. It's older than my parents. <laughs> she is the queen. Uh, she's the, the grand dame of, of the gorillas and you know the median age that here's a perfect example of how healthcare in zoos really contribute to the longevity of animals is you know they get they get quality health care from experts in every field and then you know they get their food delivered to them and uh, all that but um, she the median age for a female gorilla in the remnant wild is like 38 I'm mm -hmm. sorry yeah it's a, it, the median age is 38 so she's 63 that's incredible <laughs> So anyway, we've got a group of boys, the four boys, including the Jelani group, or Jelani, he's in that group. We have Helen, um, and then Kendi, the family group. So Kendi, Quayley, Packy, and Casey, the Silverback Casey are in that group. So, uh, but those are all the, you know, the three spaces that are in Gorilla Forest inside and then the two spaces that are outside. And just be aware that some animals have a temperature threshold. So if they're not outside, they're gonna be inside. And most of our animals 
most of our exhibits have an indoor viewing area as well as an outdoor viewing area, so you're guaranteed to see somebody. All right. So, but when you step into this space, no matter which direction you're facing, you're likely to be, to be able to catch a glimpse of the gorillas, and it's just a genuinely exciting experience. And it must be exciting for the gorillas too, because it's almost like a reversal of typical exhibit design, where instead of having a path that goes around the outside of the exhibit, um, that you, us people are free to walk around and look at any angle, you know, we're standing in the center of the exhibit. Even the entrance and exit have passageways that the gorillas are able to go over top of. And it's almost like the gorillas are at a human exhibit, one with lots of rotation. And they are free to move around and, and catch glimpses of us as they see fit. And I find that sort of exhibit design really comforting almost to know that, you know, it's really the animals who get to come to the zoo. And if they don't want to, if they don't want to deal with us and look at us, then they have the option to go into one of their two large outdoor exhibits. And it's also good to know that they're constantly being rotated and experiencing a new exhibit each day. You know, one day the the older male gorillas might be in the outdoor space that the juveniles were just in. And another day, they might find themselves in the exhibit that the females were just in. So not only are they experiencing several different spaces in a rotation, but there's also all the different combinations of different gorillas who've been there before, which creates a compounding level of experiences for the gorillas each day. It's truly a wonderful, wonderful exhibit. It's not one that that I loved at first when it was built, but every time I visit, I see more and more beauty in the way that they've constructed it with the gorillas in mind rather than the visitors. And I really appreciate that. So moving through the gorilla forest exhibit, you'll make your way down to the Snow Leopard Pass, which is my third highlight. The Snow Leopard Pass is another exhibit which has the rotational philosophy in mind. And it's another exhibit similar to Colobus Crossing where the snow leopards actually have this trail, this pass that they're able to pass overhead. We have two different spaces that you can see a snow leopard in. That was Mike Jones, assistant curator over giraffes and the valley department at the Louisville Zoo. So we have the, the main exhibit, which is um, over here, um, which has the real pretty rock work and gives the animals a lot of height. And then we have what we call the passage, which looks like a big circle. And so it gives them um, the animals and uh, the guests an opportunity to, to see uh, snow leopards in two different places. It gives the animals an opportunity to change their routine. So we actually have a third space that is kind of, um, that is more of their space. So we have three animals, so they basically all rotate. Okay. Um, the third outdoor space is kind of like their day off, as I like to call it. So they get to go outside and you can kind of see them, but it's really kind of more off exhibit, so. Gotcha, so that's a um, kind of a space of their own that they don't have to interact with people if they don't want to. Yeah, and so um, a in a lot of the areas we have what we'll call a, um, a holding space, whatever you want to yep. call it, but basically it's, it's an outdoor space where if an animal isn't on public view, um, they still have a way to be outside versus being kept into a barn or into mm -hmm. a den. Almost every time I've been since they put up this exhibit, there has been a snow leopard in the overhead section just chilling out. Now, typically I go in the summer, although zoo staff have recommended that you come in the wintertime because there ain't nobody there. So you get experiences and you get to see animals interacting with things that um, might be unique for you, especially if you've never been to a zoo in the winter. But the snow leopards, they love this, this pass. They are always up on there wandering around and just relaxing. They have a little section right by the path where keepers can do training and interaction with them. 
and it's so close and so intimate with people. And then not only that, but they also still have this big exhibit that they're able to go into. It's got lots of nooks and crevices for them to hide in. A lot of the time when we go to see them, you know, there's this little section of, of crevice of, at the top of the exhibit that you can see if you go up the ramp or go up the stairs and find yourself at the top of the exhibit. And they like to lay there because underneath of those rocks, there's actually some pipes that are pumping water through and they cool that rock down. And of course, snow leopards, by their name, are used to experiencing the snow. So laying on that cooling pipe is actually something that um, was kind of intended. And there's a viewing window that's right next to it that allows you to see exactly what's going on with these big kitties. As I mentioned before, the snow leopards are one of my top five favorite animals. So perhaps I am uh, a little biased when it comes to loving this exhibit a lot, but it's certainly innovative in the approach design it takes with allowing the animals to experience these different spaces throughout different times of the day. Snow Leopard Pass is technically a part of the larger exhibit of Glacier Run, and I really like the exhibit of Glacier Run as well. As you're walking into this exhibit, it looks like there's a, a section of collapsed road that's been that's been walled off, and you can see sometimes the bears pacing at the top of this collapsed road. Don't worry, <laughs> that is just an intentional exhibit design because Glacier Run, another one of Louisville Zoo's award-winning exhibits, is not only designed with um, the reality of the habitat of the animals in mind, but also designed with the reality of climate change in mind. You know, you have these animals that are being driven further and further south by climate change and being forced to interact more and more with human populations because of receding glaciers, receding ice sheets. You know, polar bears, they don't have the space that they used to have in the north. You know, they're used to things thawing out a little bit in the summer, but now um, when summertime comes in the Arctic, uh, there's so little ice for them to hunt on that they are driven onto dry land itself. You know, the Latin name or the scientific name for the polar bear is the sea bear because it, people are so used to seeing it on the ice flows in the ocean, but it's been driven onto the land so much that it's hardly even a sea bear anymore. <laughs> and the design of Glacier Run really reflects this. You see the collapsing road that's being caused by an encroaching glacier. You see um, the intertwinedness of the polar bear's exhibits with human construction. You know, when you think, where does a polar bear live? I just see a sheet of ice and them trying to catch a seal. But that's not where polar bears live now. Now they've been driven into these human towns, and that's what Glacier Run really represents. Kanik, our polar bear, our wild-born polar bear. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you know her story, but she's got a great story, and it's a story that's pretty common, and she is such a good ambassador for her species. You know, if we, it, if we don't start really paying attention to our, our carbon emissions and our carbon footprint, we may not see polar bears in 2050, which wow. is a beautiful, beautiful North American species that we could lose. Uh, and so Kanik really represents that well because she was um, Conoco Oil, Philip, Conoco Phillips Oil Company um, discovered her on an oil plot in the North Slope of Alaska. And they knew enough about polar bears to know that she should not be by herself at that age or that size and that she really should be with, 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 a, with a mother at that point. And so they called US Fish and Wildlife who went in to monitor the situation to see if maybe she would be reunited with her mother 
and she was not. And so they went into a triage, rescue triage. So they rescued her, they triaged her at the Alaskan Zoo, and then we were chosen to be her home uh, by Youth Fish and Wildlife. And so we are privileged and honored to, to care for her. And we don't, we won't ever know why she was separated from her mother and her and her other the other cub. Um, but it is kind of a common story in the remnant wild where there's just not enough, you know, with climate change occurring and the sea ice loss and the the hunting territories merging and the fact that the, the just the season for hunting is shorter as a result of climate change. There's less food, and so oftentimes moms are having to sacrifice one cub over the other. And so that possibly is what happened to her. But anyway, she's, she's a very good ambassador for that story of what's happening in the room that wild. And if you come to see her, she is full of life. She is full of personality. She is just uh, an amazing wild-born bear. The polar bears still do have several exhibits. They have the large exhibit with the collapsed road that kind of overlooks the seal and sea lion stadium. Um, there's a nice big pool there for them to swim in. You can see them swimming in the top or there's an underwater viewing area. Then they have the second exhibit that's kind of off to the side. It's got a truck sort of coming out of it. Sometimes you'll catch them sleeping in the back of the truck. This one's um, a little more enclosed, but from the polar bear's point of view, they can't see out of that exhibit. So for them, that's a nice safe cave, a nice safe den to be in. And then there's a third exhibit that we as visitors can't see, but it is roughly uh, between those two sizes. And it's just their own space that they get to have where they don't need to worry about who's coming to see them. Um, they just get to relax and, and kick back in their own little exhibit there. And you may see polar bears here. You may see grizzly bears here. They rotate them throughout these different places. And just like we were talking about before, these different scents that they get to experience from other animals that have been there are fascinating, especially to a predator species like polar bears or like grizzly bears that are used to following scent trails to hunt for prey. This gives a lot of enrichment just knowing that there was another animal that is not even the same species that's been in this area um, that can entertain the animals for hours alone and help them practice their hunting instincts that we might see in the wild. I think one of my favorite stories from Glacier Run is there's a pair of ducks that have made their home uh, above the polar bear exhibit in Glacier Run. And one day I saw one of those ducks just swimming around in the pool while the polar bear was out on the large exhibit. And boy, howdy, was he determined to get a hold of that duck. He was ready for a snack. Every time he would get within three feet of the duck, the duck would just fly forward 10 feet and keep paddling around, picking bits and pieces out of the water and having himself a snack. The bear never caught the duck. Eventually he got so close that the duck was like, well, maybe I shouldn't do this. And he flew right back up to his nest. And that poor bear... He looked so frustrated and sad. Um, and that's kind of a funny story on its own, but what it really shows is that polar bears are not, despite the fact that they're called sea bears, they're not meant to hunt in the water. They can swim, but they're not going to be able to catch anything when they're swimming. Um, and with all the ice melting, you know, usually they are waiting at breathing holes in the ice for seals and, and, and other um, semi-aquatic mammals to surface. But when the entirety of the ice is melted, they have no standing to attack from. They have no standing to be predators. And they're not, they can't even catch a duck in the water, let alone catch a seal who is much faster than a duck. So it really shows you just how much climate change affects a polar bear's ability to survive. You know, they can't even catch a duck in a controlled environment, let alone out in the wild where 
their very survival depends on them catching prey. So moving on from Glacier Run, my final exhibit highlight is the Islands exhibit. Um, going into this podcast, the preparation for it, the Islands was probably the exhibit I was most excited to learn more about just because I've always been fascinated. The way this exhibit works is that they have four different viewing areas for the public to see. Three of them are kind of back-to-back in the outdoor section. One of them is in the Islands Pavilion. It's called the Geens Room. And then they have a fifth off-exhibit area uh, for the animals to rotate through as well. And they have these five different species that they rotate through, the orangutan, the siamang, the babarusa, the tapir, and the island tiger. Definitely come enjoy it, hang out. That was Beverly Turgeon, one of the keepers in the island's exhibit. If you hang out for a few seconds in front of the exhibit, there, there is a lot to see. Don't immediately see something, definitely hang around and just watch and wait. Um, there are areas of the exhibit sometimes where, you know, sometimes we like to take a nap in the middle of a hot day, and animals will do that as well. So just wait a few minutes, come back around, circle back around, and see, it, it, see something, and you're definitely always going to have something to look at and something to watch out for. This is even more interesting than the rotational aspects that you see in Gorilla Forest or in Glacier Run, and this is their oldest rotational exhibit. In fact, the Louisville Zoo was the first zoo in the world to do a rotational exhibit of this kind um, and of this scale. I think there were some exhibits um, that maybe switched between one or two animals or had a, had a separate space from the public where they were rotating them through. But to have five separate exhibits and five separate species that they're rotating through was groundbreaking then. And... In my eyes, it's still groundbreaking now. Every time I go to the islands, it is a different combination of animal and exhibit. And it's always so interesting, you know. Sometimes you see the orangutan sitting on the rocky waterfall section. Sometimes you see him perched up in the climbing area of the Gein's room. Sometimes he's hanging out in the pool in the center exhibit there. I'm always just so fascinated to see, you know, what is this specific animal going to do in this specific exhibit? And as, as interesting as it is for me, as a zoo goer to see how the animals are behaving in this exhibit, it has to be even more interesting for the animals themselves to be experiencing this novel exhibit for the first time and for numerous times after that. And not only, just like the other rotational exhibits, are they getting the experience of a different space, but they're also getting the different combinations of scents from the animals that have been in there before them. And um, another groundbreaking aspect of the islands was that they included a predator species in a rotation with prey species, which you can kind of see how people might have thought this was a bad idea before it would be done, because if they're all part of the same broader exhibit, what if the tiger somehow gets in with the tapir? Well, in the 30 years since they've opened the islands, that's never happened. The keepers of the islands obviously do a very good job of keeping them separate. They have told us kind of about this tunnel system that they have it pretty much is like that you can't see it um, when you're on the public side of islands Um, it's a really cool system we kind of call it a maze back behind the scenes there's a building our holding building that holds all of our animals um, when they're off exhibit Uh, it runs the entire length of islands if you're walking around and there's kind of a shoot system and it divides the actual exhibit space and the holding space so we're never actually in with an animal they're actually walking through a system of shoots that we are with them, we're adjacent to them mm-hmm. as we're moving them around, but we're not actually in with them. So the shoot system goes to each exhibit and then goes to each one of the holding stalls that the animals are in at night. 
So we take animals off exhibit at night so that in the morning we can start with empty exhibit. We start fresh, clean, decide who's going where, um, set it all up, and then we put animals out. And not only do they, you know, would, would you see them in different exhibits on different days, but they even rotate them during the day. So you can come in in the morning and you might see the orangutan indoors, and then in the afternoon, that same indoor exhibit might have the siamang instead, which is really, really interesting. Um, so this is probably, of all the exhibits here at the Louisville Zoo, it's gotta be my favorite, just because not only is it award-winning, groundbreaking, the first of its kind, but it's still so fascinating to me, even after all these years and after all the changes they've made um, to the exhibits. And I think that's one of the things that makes the Louisville Zoo genuinely special is that they they came up with this idea for the islands exhibit and they really adopted this idea of rotational enrichment you know when we were talking to the director she said rotation 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 and i thought to myself that's really smart you know you have a limited amount of space and you could just put one animal in each exhibit and let people see it but what this really does is it makes each animal's exhibit five times larger without using any extra space at all. And far more than five times more interesting, especially especially for the animals. So moving on from my exhibit highlights, there's a few specific animals that I would say are must-sees here at the Louisville Zoo. Um, the first one, you can catch these cute little guys in the Meta Zoo, are the black-footed ferrets. And the Louisville Zoo has been hugely influential in the conservation efforts for the black-footed ferret. The Louisville Zoo, on its own, helped to breed um, 1,700 kits. That's a baby ferret. And have 1,700 they bred, and 700 were released into the wild successfully, uh, which is a mind-boggling number. And they did this in concert with many other zoos throughout the country, um, to the point that there's now a stable population of over 1,000 split into four groups, um, across several northeastern U.S. states, or, well, Midwest northern states like Montana, South Dakota. I'm not really sure what to refer to that region as, actually. But the Louisville Zoo was influential in that, and that is kind of a key talking point for zoos is, you know, why do zoos matter? Well, there are species like the black-footed ferret that they thought was extinct in the wild, and because of the efforts of places like the Louisville Zoo, they are back in the wild and they're going to be around for future generations to enjoy. And that alone is, is worth it. That alone makes the time and, and money that I've spent at the zoo worth it for me to know that there are species that my children and my grandchildren will get to enjoy and experience and, and love the way I love. Um, they're still going to be around because of the work that the zoo does. My other two uh, animal-specific highlights you're going to catch in the Herp Aquarium. They're right near each other. The first one is King Louie. He's the albino alligator at the Louisville Zoo. Um, and this is another way that zoos shine is, um, you know, animals with disadvantageous adaptations like albinos who, who lose all of their coloration and in doing so lose all of their natural camouflage. You know, it's super obvious where King Louie is. If you have trouble finding him, uh, then maybe he's not on exhibit because <laughs> he is bright white. He's got red eyes. And um, this is not an animal that would have survived in the wild. You know, King Louis uh, would have a lot, really hard time catching prey, and he might have gotten gobbled up before he got big enough to protect himself. But here at the Louisville Zoo, he gets to thrive and uh, be his own unique self. 
And that's another place that zoos shine is animals that are too injured to go back into the wild. Animals that um, have mutations that affect their ability to survive, but that we as humans might find beautiful and interesting. Um, they find a place to thrive here in zoos. And King Louie is a great example of that. And um, our final ex example animal here is Thelma, the reticulated python. She's a proud mama of six babies, but she has never interacted with another male python. Um, her birth, her laying these eggs, is one of the first recorded instances of um, any snake giving parthenogenetic birth, meaning that, um, that the babies are essentially half clones of the mother and that they are... Um, they are not their DNA is not combined with anything else. They have the exact same DNA as their mother, um, and of course the zookeepers were shocked to discover this because this has never been recorded um, in the reticulated python. So of course they were completely shocked when she laid eggs. Um, they were completely shocked when they hatched, and they were completely shocked when it turns out that these little baby snakes are exact clones of Mama Thelma herself. So that's one of the things that you look at it and you're like, well, that's just a big snake. That's pretty cool, but um, this python's presence and the zoo and the unique situations uh, that being in a zoo puts it in has allowed us to make a discovery about reticulated pythons that, quite frankly, we may never have found out otherwise. Um, its existence in a zoo is what allowed us to know this fantastically interesting fact about them, this, this fact that these giant snakes, um, that um, they're not the only snake invading the Florida Everglades, but they're one of them and they can reproduce asexually. So of course it's hard for us to get rid of them in the Everglades where they're an invasive species. No wonder it's so difficult. So these are definitely my three animal highlights. Um, I just want to touch on again really quickly, you know, what makes the Louisville Zoo so special? Um, you know, when I asked them this, they told me two things. They said, first off, the rotation. You can see it in the islands. You can see it in Glacier Run. You can see it in Gorilla Forest. You can see it in Snow Leopard Pass. It's the core philosophy of all the new exhibits here at the Louisville Zoo is giving the animals new and unique experiences each day to help enrich their lives because they really do care about the welfare of the animals here. Um, and, then, and kind of in combination with that is not only are they giving them new physical experiences through rotation, but their training that they do. Um, they said that they've been told the training that's done at the Louisville Zoo that you can see the keepers doing with the animals is some of the best that can be experienced across the nation. Um, of course, there's a lot less going on right now because of COVID. Um, a lot of the training that they might do would be with stuff like the big cats. And because <laughs> we're finding out that big cats are, in fact, susceptible to COVID-19, um, you can kind of look up and see what's been happening at the Smithsonian Zoo with that. Um, obviously it's a big cause for concern. And so things like the gorillas, things like the lemurs, things like the tigers and the snow leopards and the lions, these are all things that we're especially concerned about their health and welfare right now. So that's why there's a lot less enrichment happening, um, on the front lines where people can see. Uh, but it, the Louisville Zoo has assured me that it's still going on behind the scenes. They are still doing this daily training with their animals to, to build the bond between people and keepers. And um, as a prospective vet student myself, one of the most important things that this training does is it allows the keepers to do a lot of the husbandry that's necessary to care for these animals. 
um, to the point that there's some animals, they can even brush their teeth. They can clean their teeth. They can clean the teeth of a wild animal without fear of hurting themselves. And that's just an incredible level of trust and care that's established between the keepers and uh, the animals that they're caring for. And it's all because of this training program they've got going on here at the Louisville Zoo. So the Louisville Zoo takes about two hours to get through if you're not really stopping at any particular exhibit for too long. Uh, if you're me, it could take three, four hours to kind of stop and appreciate each animal. Um, there are a few nice activities that you can enjoy on your way through the zoo. There's a playground on your way into Gorilla Forest that the kids love. There's a splash park out by Glacier Run. It's uh, sort of right at the end of Glacier Run, right near Wild Burger and, yes, the Dole Whip. It's a great place to cool down. Um, it's mainly meant for kids, but I'm sure the people watching over the place wouldn't mind if an adult uh, stuck their face in a water sprayer every now and then. And there's even a great high ropes course close to the end or close to the beginning, depending on which way you go. Um, and that's right after the, right between the Meta Zoo and the Herp Aquarium. Louisville Zoo also has these great seasonal activities uh, to kind of encourage you to come during different times of year. You know, they have Christmas lights like a lot of zoos do. They also have kind of in the early summer and the spring, they have the Wild Lights Festival, which is they hang up these beautiful, incredible lanterns. Um, they've done that for a couple years in a row now, and I tell you what, that is always a treat, especially later in the evening. Around Halloween time, they are renowned for the world's largest Halloween party. Uh, this year, they're calling it Boo at the Zoo. Um, and kind of a play on that is Brew at the Zoo, uh, where they bring in a lot of local breweries to share their finest beer with zoo patrons. Um, obviously, that's a more adult-oriented activity, but hey, we all need a reason to go to the zoo. I guess you could say with all these different activities and seasonal events that the Louisville Zoo has, even your experience at the Louisville Zoo follows their rotational philosophy. If you're looking to see animals uh, in their most active seasons, you're going to want to come in the spring and fall. If you're looking to avoid crowds, Louisville Zoo is a great place to go in the heart of the summer and in the deep of the winter. Um, that's also a great time in the winter to experience, for example, um, much more active snow leopards, grizzly bears, polar bears. Glacier Run is going to be hopping in the colder months because this, this is where they're from. Um, Louisville winters are mild compared to the Arctic winters that these critters are used to, so they will sure be more active in the winter, although this doesn't go for everyone. And it's certainly nice to see some of the more temperate animals experiencing snow, which they would rarely, if ever, see in their native habitat. I can say that this Louisville Zoo has certainly done a good job of following its model. Um, I know that they've definitely strengthened the bond between me and my planet and all these animals that I love and care for. I can tell you from all the times that I've been to Louisville Zoo, from the experience I have as a volunteer there, from working with and speaking to a lot of their keepers, these animals are loved and cared for. And you should not hesitate to support your local zoo. But guys, I hope I can catch you at the Louisville Zoo. Feel free to listen to our walkthrough as you go through and enjoy each exhibit. And I'll see you at the zoo. Special thanks for this episode of the Zoo Pals Zoo Review for the Louisville Zoo goes out to Kyle Shepard, the media director who helped us get all our interviews together and told us some great stories about some of the animals here at the Louisville Zoo. All of the staff at the zoo who are willing to deal with us in our incessant interview questions. 
my wife for dealing with a husband who does podcasts, and the producer's wife for the same reason. All my listeners, thanks for tuning in. Shout out to my producer, Noah Wilder, for dealing with me and my bad time management skills. Shout out to Dole Whip for being delicious. We don't want sponsorship, they're just, they're just good. And shout out to the Jaguar, who shouted out. Special thanks to you, buddy. Love hearing your voice.